Welcome to the Birth Lounge Podcast, an empowering space for expecting and new parents to hear candid conversations with experts, support your mental health, and learn the tips and tricks that thousands of parents have used to craft their ideal birth. We will answer all of your questions, the scary ones and the weird ones, to help calm your fears and feel confident going into your birth. I'm going to help you redefine what birth and motherhood looks like and how to embrace your journey. I've intentionally crafted an amazing list of experts to help you navigate pregnancy, explore your birth options, and plan for postpartum so it can be a time of soaking in your tiny human. We're going to go there on all the hard topics so that you can dive into finding your confidence and freeing yourself from fears around childbirth. With almost 10 years of experience in family education and a master's degree in human development and family studies, I created this podcast as a way to share information so parents can make educated and informed decisions about their care during pregnancy and childbirth. This is a birth community driven by evidence-based information and research in hopes to help you explore your options, understand your rights, and know what choices you have along the way. I'm your host, Hee Hee. Now let's get to the good stuff. Hello, 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 listeners. Welcome back to another episode of the Birth Launch Podcast. You guys, today's episode is going to be so good. I'm really excited about this because I think these are things that you're going to want to know before your baby gets here, but nobody tells you. It reminds me of the episode that we did on plagiocephaly when, um, you know, we had a mom share her experience that she found out all of this when it was too late and it inspired me to bring on more professionals that can help you prevent things um, that you know you might want to prevent in your baby or at least be aware of if you start to see these warning signs um, or signs and symptoms of different things i hope that this is an episode that will empower you to be able to take action I am so excited to have on Kara Massey, who graduated with her doctorate in physical therapy in 2013 from Simmons College. She's been a pediatric physical therapist for seven years now, and she started her career in early intervention, just like me. She's a certified early interventionist, and now she actually works in outpatient um, setting for Mass General Boston, for Mass General Hospital here in Boston. I'm so stoked to have her on the show today to chat about all things PT in babies. I know there are so many questions that parents have about the development of your child, especially right there in the beginning. It seems like we all kind of know bits and pieces about babies, but nobody knows the nitty gritty about their physical development. And that is what Kara is going to share with us today. So Kara, welcome to the show. Hi, Hee Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here and to just share my experiences working with infants over the past seven years and um, give any tips and tricks to new parents out there or even second, third time parents that, you know, their child is developing a little differently than their first. Heck yeah, I love that. Thanks so much for coming on to share your wisdom. So what is it that you do with infants every day as a pediatric PT? If you know, if somebody's out there listening and they've never heard about that, what would someone come to you for? What are things that you do with children? So a lot of times um, we will get referrals for uh, delays in motor development, different uh, 
abnormal tones. So just the way that their muscles are moving, if it, uh, if they don't seem to be following their normal development. Um, in infants, we do see uh, some common uh, musculoskeletal problems, um, such as hip dysplasia, uh, club foot, or a very common diagnosis called torticollis, um, which is tightening of the neck muscles, which can lead to the plagiocephaly, flattening of the head. Um, so those are typical diagnoses that I'll see and work on. And about what age are these children? I mean, are you talking about newborns? Because there are some babies that, you know, during birth, they actually experience and get hip dysplasia. Would, would they come to you as a newborn? Um, it depends on the severity of it. Um, it depends on sort of what the treatment protocol is for the different diagnoses. Um, for hip dysplasia, it depends um, if they end up needing bracing um, and things like that. For torticollis, I do see a lot of newborns. Um, I will get referrals around two months of age, anywhere between two and four months. Um, we do recommend the earlier, the better, um, so you can get ahead of uh, any sort of abnormal neck movements or tightness that's there. Okay, and when, if, you know, if your pediatrician doesn't give you a referral, self-refer, can you self-refer to you or where would parents go? Um, so most of the time you're not able to self-refer to physical therapy um, in the outpatient setting. Um, if your pediatrician is hesitant at two months of referring, I would just sort of push for it and just say, you know, I'd rather get it checked out now. Um, you know, if you are noticing some uh, flattening of the head or you really feel like your child has trouble turning to one side or they always look in one direction. Um, I don't find too many pediatricians are reluctant to refer, um, but if they are for some reason, early intervention would be sort of like the other option you could self-refer to um, and maybe get evaluated through them. Sure. And um... Okay, so let's kind of dive into torticollis because I think there's so many parents out there that are listening that's like, oh my gosh, what is torticollis? Does my child have it? How do I fix it? Like, what do we do? Where do we go? Who do I talk to? So can you explain to us what torticollis is and, you know, kind of how it happens and what can we do probably starting at birth so that we don't get to two months and, you know, start seeing signs of torticollis? Is that possible? Right, so most parents end up noticing uh, the plagiocephaly first, the flattening on one side of the head. Um, a lot of times parents won't realize until a little bit later, oh yes, my child doesn't turn their head to both sides easily. Um, but they'll notice when they pick their child up, the head might look a little flat on one side, and that's because they're spending more time on one side of the head than the other. Um, most of the time with plagiocephaly, it's caused because one of the muscles in the neck, um, the sternocleidomastoid, um, which is the muscle in, that's involved in torticollis, that muscle is tight. And that causes the head to turn to one side um, and they kind of get stuck there. Um, so typically they say that this happens because of the position that they were in the womb um a child you know the in the fetus may not be moving as much and so they kind of get stuck 
Um, this diagnosis is considered a congenital diagnosis, so it's just something they're born with. It's not always preventable. Um, the biggest thing is when your child is early, um, in the first few weeks to a month, you want to start noticing, are they doing that visual tracking and are they able to follow you to both sides um, and move their head? A lot of parents also notice too that when their child is sleeping, they may only have their head looking to one side when they sleep. Um, and there's been a huge uptick in platyocephaly ever since the back to sleep campaign in the early 2000s um, because of just the way they're positioned. Um, but the back to sleep campaign has done so much more for other um, issues like SIDS and things like that. So it just kind of goes back to balancing that that back sleep with enough tummy time so that that head gets that you know gravity that pulling down on you know the the face and they're not always laying on on their head and it gives their head enough time that's it's not flat on a surface you know yeah exactly so the whole push for tummy time and the whole um you know, pediatricians talking about doing that, the tummy time is actually there to counteract the back to sleep um, and to allow for mo gross motor development um, because most children develop those gross motor skills, lifting their head, all that head control through being on their stomach. Um, but because they're getting less of that when they sleep, they need to balance that throughout the day during tummy time. So they recommend um, at least an hour of tummy time throughout the day. Um, and that can be broken up into five minutes, 10 minutes, however many, but to have a cumulative hour throughout the day um, where they are on their tummy and working on those gross motor skills. That is amazing. So I personally love tummy time. I know a lot of children don't like it. You can totally make tummy time fun and engaging and like where your baby likes it, right? Um, also, remember your baby's going to have a learning curve. Everybody fights back on new things. So just give them the space to learn to love tummy time because it it will eventually get to a point where they have independence there. They can lay on their tummy. They can reach things. They can bring it to their mouth. Um, they are going to be able to find that they can move their body in that way as well. Um, okay, torticollis. I have one last question. So if, you're, if your child is tight, let's say they're looking to the left and they have, they are favoring the left the most. Does that tell us that the neck on the left or the right is it tight? Is it the same side that they favor or the opposite side? So that's a really tricky question um, because there are a few different types of torticollis um, sort of depending on um, how they are presenting and which muscles are really involved. In the classic torticollis that we see most often, um, if your child favors the left and is looking to the left, most likely it's actually the right side that's tight um, because the muscle involved is opposite actions where it tilts the head to one side but turns to the other. So their head would be tilted to the right but turned to the left. Occasionally, um, there is certain instances where a kid may be tight on the same side. Um, we actually see that a lot in kids who have reflux. Um, there is sort of a category of torticollis that's related to reflux, um, and they may be looking to the same side and tight on the same side, and it's more of a posturing effect that infants do to help uh, relieve the pressure or the uh, heartburn from reflux. 
Isn't that so interesting that their body kind of knows how to get rid of that, that reflux or that heartburn? That is insane. Of course, I mean, I guess it's at the expense of their neck, but wow, at their body's intuition, I think I'm just kind of blown away by that. That is, that's amazing. Right. So I think it's something, um, you know, at any moment, if you feel like the child, if their head is sort of a little off center or they have trouble turning to one side and um, they either have reflux or you're just noticing that they're not moving it well, it's great to um, take a look at it. Have someone take a look to see if there's anything going on there. Okay, so what are some things that we can do at home if, you know, if you do notice this and you're like, oh yeah, this is totally my child, they're describing my child 100%, they've got the tilt, they're looking at, you know, one side, they're favorable, what are some things that we can do at home that maybe from the beginning, you know, breastfeeding on, on both sides is, is one, making sure, or not making sure, but I guess you have the option to change the crib intermittently to make sure your child is looking to both sides. What other simple things that we can, are, are there that we can do, um, you know, as parents, just easy, simple steps that maybe not prevent this, but will play the cards in our favor, hopefully. Right. So um, the biggest thing that we worry about first with some of the torticollis is the repositioning techniques for the plagiocephaly. So being able to reposition them so they're, the flatten, flattening is not getting worse. Um, so some of the things you already mentioned by, you know, turning them in, on opposite directions of the crib when you put them to bed so they're not always facing the same way. Um, tummy time, again, is just the best um, thing to do because they're off their back. But also, tummy time is great for torticollis because in that position, the muscle that is tight actually gets canceled out um, by the neck extensors. When they lift their head, um, they're able to move side to side easier than when they're on their back. So I know a lot of parents come to me and struggle with tummy time of how do we, you know, get them to do it. They cry after one minute. They really don't like it. Um, and so I think with tummy time really varying at their age, different positions of doing it, doing it over the body, doing it on your chest, that all counts as tummy time. Trying to make it successful for them when they're early on in that newborn stage. Um, having them at an incline um, just makes it so much easier. Um, I think when you want to work on sort of some of the strengthening for torticollis, just trying to get them to track to both sides is the best. Um, also working in sideline, having them on their side and playing there um, will also relieve some pressure on the flat side of the head. So putting them on the opposite side that's flat. Amazing. Thank you so much for those tips. Okay, I guess I, I'd like to circle back to hip dysplasia as well. If a child does have a need to have a brace after birth because of hip dysplasia, can you step us through that? What is that going to look like visually kind of on your baby? And then what limitations do you have at home in those first few weeks with that brace? Yeah, so it depends. Um, there are a couple type of braces that they use. Um, most of the time when if a child is at the point that they need that brace, um, they are wearing it mostly 24 hours a day. Um, so it can be very challenging to um, 
have great sleep routines, to feed them, to change them, um, and things like that. Usually the hips are in a very outstretched kind of like frog leg position. Um, so it may also be challenging to do tummy time with them um, because they're wearing this brace and they're in this position for 24 hours a day. Um, so a lot of it is, uh, you know, finding the different uh, seats or swings or things that being able to prop them up that might be a little bit more comfortable for them. They might not be as comfortable just laying flat on the floor or lay, you know, trying to do tummy time with that. You would have to kind of do it over a pillow or something like that. That was my question is, you know, if they're, if they're wearing this brace and their legs kind of need to be, you know, in a specific position, how would you flip them over and do tummy time? Cause they are supposed to be flat. Yeah, so um, I think a lot of it would be trying to see if you could comfortably do it uh, more on that chest to chest um, type of situation. You may also need to put a little bit of a blanket over yourself to make it a little bit comfortable, but anywhere that they can sort of, um, their legs aren't gonna be able to kind of lay flat, so you need to prop them up or support them from underneath. Sure, okay, and along the same lines of hip dysplasia, I want to talk about um, tools and baby products and things that you can buy that are not the healthiest for your baby's hips. And if you are going to use them, you want to be mindful of how you use them. Like baby carriers are one that comes to my mind. Um, you know, the, the seats that hang from the door frames where your child is hanging in that seat. Um, even the exorcisers where your child, again, is hanging in that seat. What do parents need to know about using those toys um, and, and using those, you know, the, that baby gear, even the, the baby wearing? What do we need to know about our child's hip development? Yeah, so with those baby wearing um, and all the sort of baby carriers, they, there's certain carriers that um, really facilitate a better uh, hip posture. And we, what we ideally want to see is we want to see that their hips um, and their legs come out uh, straight and that their knees come down at a 90 degree angle. Um, so they kind of look like a frog leg almost. We don't want their legs hanging straight down because that's going to put pressure on the hip joints. Um, so a lot of the baby carriers have really adapted to give more padding underneath and sort of look like they cover their whole thigh. Um, and all you see is their little knees hang down. And that's exactly what we want to see. Um, when it comes to the exosaucers and some of those other ones, um, we really want to wait on those until kids are a little bit older, until they're close to like seven, eight months. Um, and uh, they have a little bit more head control, they have trunk control, and at the same time, if you put them in, it's limiting how long they're in there. 10, 15 minutes at a time when you need to get something done, um, and no more than an hour a day total. I, I wish you guys could see me because I'm like shaking my head like a crazy person, like yes, 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 yes. The, the frog legs are key you guys you've got to protect your child's hips because it's going to impact their lower back and their knees and their ankles and like everything it, it kind of like it's a waterfall it's a ripple effect we have to protect these these newborns so that you know 
they crawl and they can walk and they can do whatever they want with their bodies actually in the future. We just need to protect their little bodies. Um, and then I love to hear you say you can still use those things, those tools. Um, it, it hurts my heart when I have people who recommend like, well, don't have them in your house at all. Okay. That doesn't work for all parents. So how can we make it, how can we make it a safe and, you know, effective option, but also give boundaries where it can be a healthy option. Um, and so seven, eight months, I love it is the key there because it's what I've always said that they can hold their body weight on them, you know, by themselves. We don't want their hips to be, you know, being, I guess, hyperextended. They need to really have leg muscles to kind of stand up really in that exercise. Is that correct? Yeah, so um, infants go through a few different stages of uh, developing standing. And so a lot of parents will be like, oh, at four months, they're really pushing their weight through their legs and things like that. But certain things that you have to kind of take notice when they're doing that is, are their hips behind their shoulders or are they straight under their shoulders? When are they able to really have that full head control, trunk control, and everything from their head to their toes are in a line? If they're sort of flexed forward at the hips a little bit and they're not able to balance their whole trunk over their legs, they're not gonna have enough uh, support and strength to really push through um, and support their legs. I also love to point out, like, is your child like, bouncing and like bobbling all out of control or are they truly having a controlled stand and then they're going back down and they're a controlled stand and they're going back down like if your child is doing that bobbling thing they're they're being funny they're playing they are not standing i'm so sorry to be the bearer of bad news but they're not right they are they're learning but that's not a that's not a full-on stand where your child is giving you indicators where they're ready for those type of tools and baby gear. Okay. Um, okay. Next, the, the next, um, milestone that I wanted to dive into is sitting. If your child is not sitting by four or six months, most, I mean, if, if children aren't sitting by four months, I feel like so many parents are going to freak out. Um, but that window is kind of four to six months. And so what do parents need to know about sitting up? How can we support our child sitting up? You know, when is your child truly considered, you know, late in sitting up and what do you do? Who do you tell? Where do you go? Yeah, so I think um, what parents don't realize um, or just people in general about child development is there is a huge window for child development for all of these different milestones. And just because your child isn't hitting that early end of the range versus the middle or the late end of the range, as long as they're within that range, it really doesn't matter. Um, so really for sitting, um, it can go up to about eight months. Um, and for some, uh, for rolling as well, um, rolling really goes technically the end of the range of normal is nine months. And parents think, wow, that's crazy, that's late. Um, I think one of the things that we really wanna look at are, are they hitting all those milestones and where are they getting stuck? What movements are they having trouble with? Um, because there are some kids that sit really early, but they have, they aren't rolling at all. Um, and so we really want to look at, are they able to get some of those rotational movements in? How are they using their core? How are some of those, um, 
other parts of their body moving? Can they reach across the middle? Can they turn to their side? Um, so it's kind of hitting all of them sort of in sequence. If every milestone is a little bit on the later side, but they're hitting all of them, I would not be worried at all. Um, it's more about the quality of the movement and how they're um, getting in and getting out of these movements. So a lot of times, you know, when kids are between six and nine months, can they get into sitting? Can they get out of sitting? If they're stuck and they can only sit, what does that do for them? How are they participating in their environment? Right, okay, so if you do see this, is there something we can do as parents at home? Or is this something we should make a pediatrician appointment with? Is this something we should call early intervention? Where do we go from there? Yeah, I think a lot of it is giving, um, starting with different opportunities, different floor time opportunities, where you're varying the play for them with different toys, putting them in different places, really allowing for um, as much tummy time as possible and letting them explore. Um, you can start with, you know, if they are doing well in sitting, can you get them to reach a little bit outside of their base of support where they're sitting to create more movement and see if they'll do some of those transitions. Um, if you're getting to eight months and they're really not sitting well or they're not rolling, that's when I would start to, you know, contact your pediatrician to look into it. I would think you would start that discussion at the six month appointment. Um, but you know, if they're kind of on their way and you're starting to see signs of it, I would give it another month or two. Um, and then sort of between the eight and nine month mark uh, follow up. Okay, so define, um, you know, like not sitting very well. What I imagine is a baby kind of slumped over, not having a, a strong core, not being able to really engage with their environment, exactly kind of what you said, and maybe their head hangs a little bit low. What else should we know about, you know, kind of not great sitting? What are we looking for? Yeah, so most infants will start sitting um, in what we call a prop sitting um, around between four and five months where they'll be able to put their arms down in front of them and they can support their weight through their arms while they're sitting. Between five and six months, we want to start seeing them sit upright more um, and they're not using their arms on the floor as much for support. They may put their um, arms on their legs for support. Um, but by seven, eight months, we want to see them to be upright, no arm support, and they can start reaching side to side for toys um, without too much falling to either side. And then after that, we are just looking for them what to be able to get out of that sit and probably crawl in and engage in fully with their environment. Is that right? Exactly. We want them to be able to go from sitting to their stomach, um, to be able to crawl, whether that's army crawling on their stomach or crawling on hands and knees, whichever, you know, they're starting to do. Sure. Okay. So let's dive into army crawl. It freaks parents out. They're like, oh my God, there's nothing wrong with my baby. And I'm like, no, your child is getting from point A to point B. Like they're moving. What do you say? Are, should we be worried about army crawl? Um, no, definitely not. Army crawl is a, uh, 
usually a phase most kids go through. Most kids do army crawl. Um, it's sort of that in between where they don't have enough core strength to be on their hands and knees, but they're figuring out um, how to move and get themselves there. Um, and what we really look for with crawling is we, we wanna see those reciprocal motions. We wanna see alternating arms and legs um, because that coordination piece offers so much that it doesn't matter if they're doing it on their stomach or they're doing it on their hands and knees. Um, it's one step more than, you know, kids that some kids don't crawl, um, but we hope that all kids will try to crawl. Okay, and what about scooting? Some kids don't crawl because they learn that they can get around on their butt. Um, is this concerning? Should we be worried that they've chosen to scoot rather than be on their belly? A lot of times most kids that learn how to scoot have already sort of decided or have had difficulty with that tummy time. Um, that's usually why it happens over the hands and knees crawling. Um, and it is something that it can be a little bit concerning. Um, we want to develop some of that arm strength. We want them um, to be able to have that shoulder stability for later on. Um, and also with crawling with that alternating movements, those reciprocal movements, that coordination piece is huge. A lot of times when kids scoot, they use one side more than the other and they're not getting that alternating piece um, where we have that coordination. At the same time, the scooting does allow for some more independence and movement and things. Um, so, you know, it is something to take a look at and are there ways that you can promote the crawling even if they do scoot? Um, we do try to, if someone comes to physical therapy because they uh, were, haven't started pulling up to stand or they're later walkers um, and they scoot, we still try to encourage uh, different techniques of being on their hands and knees and promoting that crawling. Sure, and when we see, you know, children scooting, are we normally seeing that same leg on the same side as the tightness? That. Occasionally, occasionally um, kids with torticollis will develop a scoot or they may crawl on their hands and knees, but one of their legs is sort of up in this flex position. Oh. Um, a lot of times it can either be on the same side or it can be the opposite side, um, either due to some tightness that's uh, throughout the rest of the body. Occasionally with torticollis, we do see some tightness down through the trunk as well as the hip. Um, but the, the more dominant side may also be the one that is up when they're scooting um, because that other, the opposite side is stronger. That makes a lot of sense. Wow. Okay. So now that our child is crawling or scooting, how long does that phase last and when should we expect our child to start um, walking and what do those phases kind of look like? Plus, when should we be worried if our child is not walking? I feel like a lot of people hold that one year birthday as a milestone and it's okay if your baby's not walking by one, you guys, you've got a couple months. So what does that actual window look like? Right. So the window is huge. People don't realize that the normal walking window is anywhere between 12 and 18 months. Yes, 18 months is normal. Um, 
So I think a lot of times that crawling phase and the scooting phase can take a little bit longer um, for some kids. Um, some kids may do it for a month or two, some may do it three to four. Um, it sort of depends on um, what are the opportunities for pulling up to stand and cruising. Um, and so still having that floor time where they can explore. Um, a lot of times, um, the walkers um, where the child sort of sits in the walker, that's not going to promote that, that cruising um, and the weight bearing that they need for walking. Um, whereas the push toy walkers are great. Those, you know, uh, model some of that board walking, that typical progression that we see. Um, so usually around, uh, you know, 15 months, if they're really not pulling up to stand or cruising, I would, you know, start to kind of look into maybe why aren't they, but I, I wouldn't be overly concerned. They're still normal. If they're starting to pull up to stand and cruise, they may start walking by 18 months. Okay, and that reminds me of once our children, you know, are like walking, we're like, oh, dang, these kids have to have shoes now and they're not a newborn anymore. What do we need to know about shoes? I've always heard and kind of recommended not to put your child in these big, huge, clunky shoes that the thinner, the better. You really kind of want to, you're, I'm a huge fan of barefoot. Um, after six months, I really kind of just think having their feet on the ground is the best way to really give them, you know, the lay of the land, if you will. So thin shoes is kind of what I recommend. What do you recommend? And then also in the winter time, especially here in Boston, we can't do thin shoes. What do we do? How do you manage that? Right. So the whole, uh, the thought behind shoes is really the best thing is for them to be barefoot as much as possible. So when they're home, wherever they are, being barefoot is the best. Of course, wintertime creates some issues where, you know, um, are there, you know, thick enough socks that they can wear, things like that to still allow them to be a little bit more barefoot or, you know, if they really need that extra um, layer, the thin shoes would be better. Um, but even, you know, after they start walking, if it's still, you know, if it's not too cold or not cold enough in your house and you can keep them barefoot or with socks, that's ideally the best. Um, and even as they are outside of that 18 month window and they're toddlers, you still want them to be barefoot because that's how they're going to build up their arch. Their arch doesn't fully develop until they're close to school age, around five. And so we really need to strengthen all those muscles in their feet. And that's how you get that feedback is being barefoot. That's how they strengthen all those muscles. You are speaking to my country heart. So I don't know if you know this about me, but I grew up in Mississippi and on a farm and I was always barefoot. I grew up barefoot. I have a, I have a fairly high arch, but yeah, barefoot. I love being barefoot. I, I can't wait to have kids and just have them barefoot all the time. Okay. I do have one final question. What do we do as parents that hinder our child's development. And for example, what pops into my mind is hip carrying isn't always the best. Sometimes we can cause our child's feet to kind of point in or give them, um, you know, bowed legs. What are some things that we might do unintentionally as parents that we could do better or differently that might benefit our child and their physical development from a PT 
standpoint? Um, I think one of the biggest things is just allowing their own exploration. Kids innately really have um, those motor plans built into them. And so a lot of it is giving them the opportunity just to be on the floor and to explore and to also really change up their environment um, as they're getting close to that sort of five, six months of age and they're really starting to try to move. Um, we want them to be able, they learn from trial and error. They learn the best from trying and failing and then realizing, oh, I have to do it differently because that didn't work that time. And so if they're always in the same place or with the same toys and it becomes routine, they don't know how to change their play, change their movements and how to adapt. Um, so I really think just sort of varying all of their play environment, their toys and things like that. All right, I know I said that was my last question and it, it's not, it never is. What do we do about lazy babies? So if you change your baby's environment and they literally just lay there and they're like, look, I'm not doing tummy time here. I'm not doing tummy time there. I'm not doing tummy time anywhere. Like I'm not doing tummy time. Um, you know, you lay them on their back and they're like, okay, I'm just gonna hang out here. What can we do to kind of get these babies engaged? Yeah, I think a lot of it is finding those um, distraction techniques, those things that, what does your baby love? What do they laugh at? What do they squeal at? You know, is it music? Is it those baby mirrors? Kids love looking at themselves in a mirror. Um, so what are the different tools that you can do um, to kind of distract them and really start from ground zero and build it up, you know? One minute is a success. Two minutes is a success. How can you kind of build off of that and really, you know, work with your child and meet them where they're at? Don't expect them to, you know, if they're not doing something that someone else is doing, it's okay. Every baby's different. I love that so much. I love to say baby steps for your baby. It is insane and so just age inappropriate to expect your baby to perform at an older child or an adult level, right? You, you're bringing adult expectations that someone, you're going to teach someone something once or twice and they're going to get it. That is an adult expectation. Um, and we can't place that on our babies. They need a lot of time and shown and to be shown and shown and shown and shown and to be told try it again and to be told that was a great job even when they miss um so yes oh my gosh this has been such a fun conversation thank you so much for joining me if there were any listeners who were concerned about any of the things that we might have mentioned today um what should their first steps be after they listen to this podcast yeah, I think the first steps would be if there were any concerns, um, especially if it's, you know, young infants and you're worried about sort of the flattening or your baby's only looking to one side, have those open conversations with your pediatrician um, to really, you know, express your concerns about it. And most of the time, the pediatricians are more than happy to have that second look if you um, either feel that you want a referral to physical therapy at any point um, or seeking out early intervention um, as a second resource since you can self-refer to early intervention um, to kind of just have your baby looked at and find where they are developmentally. I love that. Thank you so much. That is really the most empowering thing that you can ever tell a parent is take it into your own hands. 
look it up and you know take it into your own hands self-refer start talking to people the best thing you can do as a parent is just action um, and much like our newborns you may call a doctor and they say that you know we can't help you, you call the second one they say we can't help you. you call the third one they say we can't help you keep going somebody um, will help you and start asking in your community too you can start to ask if other parents have experienced this and who helped them through this who who were the specialists that they saw that's a great way to get um, you know really good referrals oh my goodness you guys you had no idea that we were going to talk about all of this stuff tummy time counteracting back to sleep and hip dysplasias and carriers and how to wear your carry how to carry your baby and sitting and crawling and floor time and scooting and walking and all of the things Kara thank you so much for being here with me today thank you Hehe, so much for having me it's been great to talk with you I appreciate it. I know our listeners are probably so mind blown, but also I appreciate you being so empowering that that truly is the way to take your child's health into your own hands. If you guys have any questions, you know where to find me and then Kara gave you all of the next steps for you if you think that something in this episode applies to your baby. All right, listeners, thank you so much for hanging out with us today. I'm so proud of you for showing up for yourself. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And I will see you on Friday for another Friday Free Talk. Thank you so much for tuning in today. I truly do value this community and I love hanging out with you. If you found today's episode helpful, share it with a friend. Share it with someone who might also find this information helpful. I'd love to hear what you have to say and read your sweet words on iTunes. You can leave us a review and this helps get this information into the hands of parents who might also benefit from hearing it. If you're interested in joining The Birth Lounge, you can go to thebirthlounge.com. Our blog is linked there. You can find all sorts of free information as well as how to get your access to The Birth Lounge. You can always hang out with me on Instagram as well, at Tranquility by Hehe. Until then, stay educated, stay supported, stay confident. Just a friendly reminder that nothing in this podcast is to be used as medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Please consult your healthcare provider with any questions or concerns you have about your health or anything discussed in this podcast. Side effects may include educated adults, informed decision-making skills, and consensual care. Tranquility by Hehe and the Birth Lounge are not responsible for any ideal births that were created with this podcast. The birth parent deserves all the credit.